the book of Ephesians, chapter 2 tonight. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and um, get ready to catch one. The ushers will bring you one. Nice. Is that a record? No takers? Ephesians chapter 2. Now the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians highlight for us everything that we have as believers and as those that are in Christ Jesus. You keep reading that phrase over and over again as he keeps going through that in Christ Jesus we have these things. And as I kept reading those words, in Christ Jesus, I began to think about, you know, uh, how, how, you know, someone perhaps who is in uh, the public school system or in a particular job where they are tenured. You know, my wife was a teacher for one year before we had our first child, and, you know, she hadn't reached that milestone yet where you are tenured, you know. And the whole purpose behind being tenured is that your job is more or less secure, that you don't have to any longer worry about whether or not they're going to keep you. And the purpose of someone being tenured, at least in theory or in principle, is that you are tenured so that you can focus more completely upon doing your job, being productive, you know. Now, the system has become, well, that just is a license now to be lazy. I am now tenured, therefore I don't have to do anything because I can't lose my job, I'm in. And see, this whole concept of being in Christ Jesus that Paul is giving to us so richly, so incredibly, we are tenured, we are in. But see, the purpose of our tenure is not so that we can relax and say, okay, well now I'm just going to live however I want to. But rather, it's a focus. There's something there where we are in Christ and our destiny has been sealed. Our place, our position has been settled. And so therefore, we no longer have to give worry or thought to whether or not we are accepted. But now we can devote all of our energy to living this Christian life and giving ourselves wholly to His purposes and His plan for us. And so Paul telling the Ephesian believers that you are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, he tells us the glory of His grace. That He would choose us. That we are accepted in the Beloved. That we have been adopted as children of God. That we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. A, a sign of God's ownership upon us. His commitment to us. That we are blessed in heavenly places. That God has set His blessing upon our lives. That we've been redeemed from what we once were and made into something that we never could have imagined that God would do for us. And that on top of all of that, the God of all creation, the Most High God, has revealed Himself to us. That He has allowed us to see spiritually that our eyes have been opened so that we might perceive even just a, a, a sliver of who He is. And all of that is just in chapter 1, as Paul gives to us probably the most incredible diamond in all of the New Testament as he just explains to us the power and the glory and the majesty of the grace of God. Now, as we come into chapter 2, it's a completely different story. See, any jeweler, anyone who wants to 
showcase a diamond or a jewel that is exceedingly precious will always seek to find the darkest, most black velvet that they can find to, you know, put in the background behind that jewel because the darker the background, the more magnificent that jewel seems. You know, you'll never go into a jewelry shop and see, you know, a diamond showcased with a white or a pearl-covered background. You know, it's always dark, it's always velvet, it's purple. It's something that really shows off the magnificence of the jewel that's being shown. And here, as we cross into chapter 2, Paul gives to us the blackest, darkest, most decrepit background to this jewel that he's given us in chapter 1 that you could ever imagine. Look with me there at those first two words. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and you. And you. And enter the velvet backdrop, you know, behind the glory of the grace of God. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, if you notice there that the words hath he quickened, they're there in the text, but they're written in italics, which means that they're not there in the original language and that they were added by the translators to somehow try to produce clarity. I don't think it gets any clearer than if you just leave those words out. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, those words are in the text when we get down into verse 5, but they are not in the text there in verse 1. Now, I don't know about you, but as we went through all of chapter 1, and we were looking at all of these incredible truths that are so much higher than anything we could ever attain, for me, there was this huge elephant in the room the whole time. You you familiar with that phrase? You know, when when there's like a whole group of people in in a room, and there's an issue, you know, and there's something that, that nobody wants to say because it would make the situation awkward, you know, or something. But there's this obvious thing, and you know that everybody's thinking it, but no one wants to say it. I remember before my mother passed, she had a terminal cancer. There's no cure for what she had. And we would all get together, but we never wanted to talk about the fact that she was going to die. And so it was the huge elephant in the room, you know, that, that this fact was there, but yet we didn't want to touch upon it, so we just ignored it and pretended it wasn't there. And as we go through chapter 1, we're seeing all these incredible truths about the glory of His grace, the majesty of His his love, and all that He has done for us. But this huge elephant's been in the room the whole time. Paul points to it in chapter 2, verse 1. And you. Yeah, I know the grace. Yeah, I know in principle, in theology, I understand the concept. But you don't know what's in me, Paul. You don't know what's in me, pastor or teacher or evangelist or church worker. You don't know what's in me. Oh, yes. God is fully aware of what's in you. And he paints to us a vivid picture of it here in the opening verses of chapter 2. Now, chapter 1 is insight into the majesty of the grace of God. And chapter 2 is how it relates to us. Now, the chapter breaks down like this. If you're an outliner or you like to, you know, kind of see things organized in your mind, verses 1 through 3 tell us what we were apart from Jesus Christ, what we were before we were saved. Verses 4 through 7 tells us what we are now that we're in Christ. Then, verses 8 and 9 tell us how we got from what we were to what we are. 
then, verses 11 through 18, tells us what it means from a positional standpoint. And then verses 19 through 22 explain what God is doing in our lives now while we're here on this earth. And what is it all about? Now, we'll only get through verse 10 tonight, Lord willing, and we'll finish the chapter next week. But Paul begins in the first three verses here by telling us, first of all, what we were before we came to Jesus Christ. He says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. The first thing that Paul tells us about ourselves apart from Christ is that we were dead. Spiritually dead. Death in this context is a spiritual separation, that we were separated from the life of God. Like I shared last week about the plant that is torn out of the ground. There might be some evidence of color left in the petals of that flower, but for all intents and purposes, that flower is dead the second those roots are pulled out of the ground. And when Adam fell into sin there in the Garden of Eden... As the representation for all men, his connection was broken with God, and he spiritually died the day that he sinned. And that that sin passed upon all men, that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all, by nature, born separated from God's presence. We're alienated, the Bible says, from the life of God. We're cut off from His source, cut off from His blessing. We don't know Him, the Bible says, that we are in darkness. The Bible says that we are blind. And Paul tells us here, apart from Christ, you were dead. And the evidence of that death, he says, was that you were in trespasses and in sins. Now, you think that Paul might be being redundant by just saying, well, trespasses and sins, you know, that he's just using the same word but in two different ways you know, ways for emphasis. No, no. See, the Bible uses three different words for sin that we would say in the English language. The first is the word iniquity. And what iniquity means scripturally or in its original language is just basically uncleanness. Iniquity is just uncleanness. It's it's not on purpose. It's nothing that you went out and and tried to do that was wrong or sinful, quote-unquote. But it's just uncleanness, just general, thoughtless uncleanness, you know. And the Bible says that we are all filled with iniquity, that we, have, we are laden with it. Second of all, the Bible uses the word sin, and we're familiar with that word. We use that word all the time. And to sin, in its original context, just simply means to miss the mark. Which means that you were trying to hit it. Your intentions were in the right place. You wanted to hit the bullseye, hit the target and do what's right. But you just simply weren't able to do it. You didn't have the skill or something went wrong in your attempt. And when you tried to do what was right, you fell short of that mark and you missed it. And it's called sin in the Bible. It's not on purpose, it's not necessarily intentional, but it's just something that is, it's a fact, it's sin. So iniquity, uncleanness, sin is missing the mark. But then the Bible uses the word trespasses or transgression, it's in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. And that's a completely different word in and of itself. Transgression is not uncleanness that you didn't try to do or, you know, that just kind of happened. It's not where you missed the mark, where you, you know, thought you could do it and you found out that you couldn't do as well as you wanted. This is different. This is where God comes and God draws a line in the sand right in front of your face. 
And he says, don't cross that line. And you look God right in the face. And you go, and you cross the line. That's transgression. That's trespass. It's when you on purpose, consciously, knowing that you're doing what's wrong, and yet you choose to do it wrong anyways. And the Bible says that we were dead in trespasses. That all of us have experienced that where we knew we were doing something that was wrong. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't uncleanness. It wasn't that we tried but failed. We sinned. We transgressed. We trespassed the commandment of the Lord. And we did what was wrong right in His face. And Paul says that this death that we experienced wasn't just the innocence of being a descendant of Adam, but that we were dead in that we committed the same act of trespass or transgression, that we all have rebelled against God in our will, and that therefore we are dead. Now what gives me hope is that in the 32nd Psalm, The psalm writer writes to us, and he says this. He says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. That's willful, on purpose. I meant to do it. Trespass. Whose sin is covered. That's to miss the mark, to try and to fail. And then blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, uncleanness. And in whose spirit there is no guile. That not only does God forgive us for our uncleanness and for our sin wherein we tried and failed. But God goes so far as to forgive us of even our transgressions of our trespasses. Well I'm getting ahead of myself. But see the sin is what makes us dead. We are dead. It's the evidence that we are dead. And the fact that we are sinners has rendered us dead before God. And so the first thing that Paul tells us that we were before we came to Christ is that we were dead. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, he says, Wherein, in those sins, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now, he uses that word walked. He said that wherein, in these sins, you walked according to the course of this world. The word walk there, it's a word that means meandered. To meander, like a meandering stream. It means an aimless stroll. It means to go somewhere or or be on a path, but to not have any destination or any purpose and just kind of to be wandering your way through and just basically going with the flow. And he tells us what that flow is. He tells us according to the course of this world. That there is a course that this world is on. There's a meandering stroll that those that are dead are upon. And, and that we all were dead in that condition. And we were just walking along, strolling, going with the flow according to the course of this world. The word world there in the Greek language is the word cosmos. And it isn't speaking of the physical nature of our planet, you know, the elements, but rather it's speaking of the system that makes up this world that we inhabit. Now we understand that this world has a common system of rules and ethics. And whether we can define it or not, all of us have experienced it. 
There are certain rules, there are certain things, there is a way that this world operates, and and it's common, it's just, it's something that's in place, and we're all just kind of a part of it. If if you have ever driven down a highway during rush hour, when you're going with the flow of traffic, you know, you see that there's all these cars, and everybody's there, and everybody's got their cup of coffee, and you can see the lights coming off their radio, and you know, and then you're just driving down, going with the flow, and then you go in, and you punch the clock, and you go through the thing, you know, and then and the day finishes, and what happens? You're going the other way on the highway with all the other people. And there's just kind of this flow of how things work. And you say, well, this is just life. This is life as it is. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about when he just talks about the course of this world. That we've all been a part of it. And he tells us that those that are dead, those that are apart from Christ that have not yet been risen or made alive by the glory of His grace, that those people spend their lives living according to the rules and the ethics that are set up in this course of this world, you know, as it's stated there. And then He gives to us, as He moves on, two rules that govern the system of this world. Because we know that, we understand that there's a course, there's a direction, there's something that's happening, the world is going somewhere, it follows this, this, this rule system. And he tells us what the first two, the highest two rules of this world system are. And rule number one is that Satan is in charge. Again, read with me verse two, he says, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Now when God made man upon the earth, the Bible tells us that God gave to Adam dominion or authority over the works of his hands. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, five times in that verse it says that God set man over his creation. It says that God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. That God gave to man this dominion, that he was over all of it. That there was this this way in which Adam could operate wherein everything was subservient to him. It was demonstrated by Jesus Christ when he walked in the life and in the light of God. We see him and it says that in the middle of the night he came to them walking on the water. And they supposed that it had been a ghost because they were amazed. that well, Well, how could this be? He hears this man and he's defying all of the laws, the laws of this cosmos, the course of this world. He's breaking those laws. And then stepping into the boat, <coughs> excuse me, he, he, he cries out and he tells the wind and the waves to stop. And immediately there was a stillness, a calm. And it says that his disciples were sore amazed that, that he has power over even the wind, over the elements that obey him. And Jesus was an example of what it was that Adam possessed as God gave him dominion, not just over the creatures, but it says even over the earth, over all the earth, Adam had dominion. He was given that by God. The psalmist in Psalm 8, he declares, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? You crown him with glory and honor, and you set him over the works of your hand. 
that that's the way that God made man, that we were made to have dominion. But something happened when Adam sinned. When he transgressed, the only thing that God told him not to do, did you hear it, transgressed? There was an apple, or not an apple, I'm sorry, it doesn't say an apple. There was a fruit, a forbidden fruit, and he was told that he was not to partake of it. And Eve first did, and then she gave it to Adam. And he, the Bible says, willingly transgressed. Eve was deceived, but Adam transgressed. He sinned against the revealed will of God for his life. And he partook of that fruit. And a curse came upon Adam and upon all men as a result. And if you listen to the language that was given in that curse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. It says that unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. When man fell, he went from being over the creation of God to being placed under its curse. He, no longer would it bring forth unto him, but now the earth would bring forth for him thorns and briars, and that by the sweat of his brow, no longer being one that had dominion, but being under its dominion, under its authority. Now, Paul tells us something very interesting in Romans chapter 6. In verse 16, Paul says this. He says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Listen to it again. Whoever, or he says, yeah, who, to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are. Listen to it. Whoever you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are. Now, who did Adam yield to in the garden of Eden as he stood beneath the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He yielded to Satan. It was Satan's suggestion that he should partake of this fruit, and Adam yielding to the suggestion of Satan and partaking of that sin, he thereby placed himself under the dominion of Satan, thereby transferring dominion or ownership or title of the earth into the hands of the adversary, into Satan. You say, are you trying to say that Satan is the one who now exercises dominion over this world and over its system? That Satan is the one who's running the show and ordering the events on planet Earth? Is that what you're trying to say? This is exactly what I'm saying. There's a most interesting scripture in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. It's when Jesus was being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says that after that time, he was hungry. And it says that Satan came to him. And listen to what Satan says to Jesus. It says that the devil taking him... Into a, uh, into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. 
If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Now, listen to who Satan is talking to. He's talking to the creator himself. He's talking to the almighty God. And yet he has the audacity and the boldness to declare before him that I am the one that holds the cards concerning the affairs that take place on planet earth. That all of the dominion over this planet has been given to me and I can give it to whoever I will. And if you will just bow down and worship me, it's all yours. Now, think with me for a minute. What did Jesus come to do? He came to redeem the world back to God, didn't he? And the avenue whereby God appointed that he would redeem the world was that he would humble himself and that he would hang upon a cross. That the wrath of Almighty God would be poured out upon His only begotten Son. And that Jesus, in obedience and in surrender to God, He would bear the punishment for man's sin. And that three days after dying, He would rise again, and in His victory over sin and over death, He would win the world back by keeping the law, by doing it righteously, and providing a means for man to be saved. Now, Satan here is suggesting to Jesus, listen, You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to die. I'll spare you the trouble. Listen, I've got the deed right here. All you've got to do is bow down to me. Hey, look, we're in an isolated place. No one is ever going to know about it. No one's ever going to know that you committed this itty-bitty little sin. It's really, it's no big deal at all. It's never going to come out. It's never, and, and, and you know, I just want the satisfaction. Just bow the knee real quick. I'll sign the deed over to you. Mission accomplished. You can carry it back into heaven. It's all yours. The battle is over. But what does Jesus say? It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, all that to say is that Satan is the one that holds the cards concerning the affairs that take place upon planet Earth. Three times Jesus called him the God of this world or the Prince of this world in John chapter 16. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he called him the God of this world, speaking of Satan, the lowercase g, that he's the God of this world. He's the one that's in charge of the affairs, the things that go on on this planet. And the Bible is very clear that that's the way things work, that he is in control of the course of this world. The geopolitical events that are taking place, the way that nations are aligning themselves and shifting and getting themselves ready for whatever it is that they're doing, it's all Satan's working as he desires to usurp authority over the planet and to bring man into eternal damnation. The degradation of cultures and the things that are taking place on the social scene and in pop culture all being streamed and funneled and orchestrated and you know, directed by Satan himself as he seeks to deceive and to lie and to steal. The natural disasters that take place on this planet. It's all a work of the devil himself. We see that in Job chapter 1. It says that fire fell from heaven. You know, that was the direct result of Satan's blow. Destroying Job's posterity. You know, his increase, his substance. And it's amazing that even the servants of Job, they come to Job and they say, The fire of God fell from heaven. No, 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 that wasn't the fire of God. It's very clear whose fire that was. Satan is the one who's orchestrating, destroying. Jesus said that I'm not come to destroy men's lives, but to save. Now, the secret is that Satan works for God. That's the big secret. My daughter asked me yesterday, she said, what's the story of Job? 
And the first thing I said was, wow, I'm not doing my job. You know, you don't know who Job is. I'm really blowing it, you know, kind of as a, as a dad, you know. But so last night what I did is I took them through, you know, the beginning of Job. And, and, and you should have seen, like, the fear that kind of comes on their face when they hear the conversation between Satan and God. And Job comes up, and he had nothing to do with it. But next thing you know, all his stuff's getting destroyed. And, you know, he's clueless. And, they, and I can see their little faces. And then I told them, I said, but listen, understand, Satan works for God. He can do nothing except God allow him to do it. There was a fence that was set up around Job, and Satan couldn't get in. It wasn't until God said, go ahead. I'll show you that Job won't curse me to my face. See, although Satan is the one who's orchestrating and moving and jockeying and setting things in his certain way, it's God that's in control of all of it. Psalm chapter 2 says that the Lord shall laugh because he will have them in derision. It says that they will conspire against the Lord and against his Christ and seek to overthrow, but it says that God will laugh at their plans. If you read Psalm chapter 37, I'll give you the assignment. You can go home and, and read it on your own. But Psalm chapter 37, verses, uh, I think it's 12 through 15 there. You know, you read what's going on. And, and it talks about how the wicked, you know, that they draw back the bow and they prepare their sword. And the context of it is the rich that are going to just kind of take everything away from the poor. You know, kind of what we see taking place in the whole world's economy right now. You know, the rich kind of using the world markets and manipulating the systems of the currencies and all of that and enriching themselves in the process and bankrupting the lower and the middle classes and just amassing all of the wealth to themselves. And Psalm 37 verse 12 describes it as how they prepare their bow, how they pull it back as they prepare to kind of sweep the whole thing. But the Bible says that their bow will be broken. And that their sword shall enter in and pierce themselves. Why? Because no matter how much Satan will conspire, or no matter how much he desires to move, it is God that holds the cards in the end. And that he will move however he desires, however he wills, because nothing is higher. He is far above principalities and powers and rulers of this world. But rule number one concerning the course of this world, as Paul is putting it to the Ephesians, is that Satan is in charge. He is the one that is orchestrating the events that are taking place. Rule number two, and this is the one that's more important, is that those that are on that course, that are meandering and walking according to the course of this world, that they also are controlled by Satan. Notice again in verse 1. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, listen, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now, as a child of God, you understand, if you've been saved and you know the Lord and, and you've tasted his word and he's working in your life, you understand what it's like to have the spirit of God at work in your life. That, that he's wrestling with you. That there's this constant thing that's happening with God in you where he's trying to do something in your life. He's seeking to conform you into the image of his son. He's constantly trying to turn you away from the course of this world and to set you on that narrow way and to make those adjustments, those changes in your life. You understand what that's like if you're a Christian. I certainly know that I do, you know. And, and it's literally like a wrestling. You know how it, it says that he works in us. Because he wrestles with us. We fight. We say, no, Lord, I'm no, I don't want to give that up. I don't have to give that up. It's not even in the Bible that I should have to give that. And, and we wrestle with them. We argue. We go back and forth, you know. 
And like Jacob at the Jabbok Brook, you know, when he's wrestling with God and he's like, I'm not letting you go. And there's this thing. And we understand that picture because we know what it's like to have the spirit of God working within our lives, seeking to wrestle us into a place where he can bless us and use us. And we know that. We understand that. But what Paul is saying here to us is that those that don't have Christ, those that don't know the working of God's Spirit within them, that it is not the Spirit of Christ, but it is actually the Spirit of Satan that is working in their lives. It says that he's the Spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. That the Spirit of Satan is literally working within their lives, seeking to conform them into the image of, first of all, the world. Because if Satan is the one that's orchestrating and kind of setting the course, this meandering, go-with-the-flow kind of aimless destination of this world that's ultimately going to hell, the first thing he's going to try to do with his people is conform them into the image of the world. But second of all, he's also trying to conform them into his own image. Because whatever spirit is at work in your life, ultimately you're going to be conformed into the image of that same spirit. That's just the way it works, see? If it's the spirit of Christ that's working in your life, then ultimately you're going to become more Christ-like because he's working in you to conform you into the image of Christ. But if it's the spirit of Satan and the spirit of the world, then ultimately you're going to begin to bear the same image as he himself has. Now what do we know about our adversary? What is the image of those that have the spirit of Satan that work within their lives? Well, Satan is completely centered on self. So anybody who's under the influence of his spirit, that's the way they're going to live. Everything is all about me. Rule number one is look out for number one, numero uno, you know. Completely self-centered. Everything, uh, an egocentric universe. Satan exists exclusively to exalt and to magnify himself. The Bible says that his whole purpose on planet earth is that he will set himself in the place of God and declare himself to be God and he will demand of the world to be worshipped as God. And so, what is the result of those people that Satan is working with in their lives? They live, they seek to exist just to magnify and to exalt themselves. Everything is all about their glory, their comfort, their prosperity, their blessing, their position, other people's opinion of them. Everything is all about me, glory to me. At the very core, Satan, the Bible says that he is a liar, a murderer, and a thief. That the root of his existence is to deceive so as to prepare... his own position, and to magnify himself. To kill so that no one can take from him anything that's his. It's all his. It's all got to be his. And then to steal and take, take whatever he has to take. And so that will be the image of those also that have that spirit working within them. And he does all of it. Now here's the kicker. Everything that Satan does, he does it clothed in light. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Do not marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their work. That Satan doesn't come on the scene with a red suit and a pitchfork and fire coming out of his mouth and say, I'm the devil and you're going to follow and worship me. No, no, no. That's not how he comes. 
He comes with such righteousness, such magnificence, such intelligence, everything that's attractive to us. And he comes in such a way and he just deceives us. He puts righteousness behind his principles and behind his actions. He declares that you have rights and so therefore by serving yourself or seeking your own that that's the way you should do it because, you know, everything is good, everything is light, everything is right. And so what you have is you have this whole world of people that are being influenced by the spirit that's working in them where everything is all about them, everything exists for them, but that that's the way it should be because that's right. It's the spirit of Satan, it's the spirit of this world. And those that are under his influence will bear the image of him whom they follow. Now, it's a lot easier for Satan to work in the life of a child of disobedience than it is for the Spirit of God to work in someone's life. Here's why. Because the Spirit of God, when he works within our lives, he uses the Word of God which is contrary to our sinful nature. Right? I mean, we read the Word, and it, the, the things that it tells us to do are the opposite of our natural inclinations. Our natural inclination is to take what we want. The Bible says, don't steal. Our natural inclination is to lust or to covet after something we desire. The Bible says, do not covet, do not lust, be content with the things that you have. Our natural tendency is to say, to amass to ourselves wealth and riches and glory. The Bible says, you know, that they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and hurtful lusts. And so the Word of God is in contrast to the nature that we have within us. And thus the Spirit of God has a harder time conforming us into His image because it's contrary to our natural selves. On the other hand, Satan, when he seeks to do his work in someone's life, all he has to do is appeal to the lusts that are already there. Hey, it's, you're just following your nature. That's, that's what God, he put that in you. He made you that way. Why would God tell you not to do something that he gave you the desire to do? And we say, well, it just makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> and so it's a lot easier for Satan to work in someone's life because he just uses the natural lusts of their sinful nature in order to manipulate them. Look at verse 3. Paul says this very plainly. He says, among whom we all, notice that, we all. That there was no one that didn't follow this course. There's none that isn't inclined to go that direction or that prior to coming to Christ didn't walk that path. He said, among whom we all, and he includes himself, had our conversation. And that word conversation is just an old English word that means lifestyle or manner of living. If you have an NIV or a New King James, it fixes it for you. Among whom we all had our manner of living in times past, listen, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now the work of Satan in someone's life, someone who doesn't know Christ, is just to get them to live com to completely satisfy themselves. And the work of Satan is very easy to recognize. He, he has such an easy time of doing what he does. In fact, you know that I have seen Satan's playbook? I have actually, with my own eyes, seen his book of strategies. What he uses to trip people up and to deceive them into following his way, into getting on this meandering course of destruction. You know where I've seen it? It's right in the Bible. 
1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John gives to us all of Satan's tactics. He tells us his whole entire playbook in two verses. Sorry, three verses. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to what John the Apostle writes. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, here it is. For all that is in the world, The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is the complete sum total of Satan's playbook. That is all he needs to deceive a human life and to get someone meandering on a course that will destroy them. What did Satan do with Eve in the Garden of Eden when he brought her under the the spell of that tree? He said to her three things. He said, listen, you're going to be like God and he doesn't want you to be like him. And you know that the day that you eat that you're going to know good and evil. And you're going to be like God. And God is trying to keep something back from you. And you know what it says? It's Genesis chapter... Oh, goodness, I wrote it down somewhere, but I have no idea. Oh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It'll probably come up on the screen. It says this. It says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, And that it was desirous to make one wise. That's the pride of life. It says that she took of the fruit and she did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. She fell prey to the playbook of Satan. It was good for food. It's pleasant to my eyes. And it's desirous to make me wise. It's going to enrich me in a way wherein I will be magnified above what I am right now. The pride of life. And she fell prey to it. What was it that Satan sought to trip up the Savior, Jesus, with when Jesus was tempted there after those 40 days and 40 nights? He said, if you be the Son of God, command these stones that they be made bread. The lust of the flesh. Do something with your power to satisfy the needs of your body. Make this stone into something that is going to satisfy you, something that will satiate, something, it's what you need, it's your natural desire. It wasn't the will of God for him at that time. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But Satan tried the lust of the flesh. And then he brought him to, you know, the exceeding high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and all the glory of them appealing to the lust of his eyes. And he said, see it all, look at it, look at the glory. Look, there's the lights of Manhattan thousands of years into the future. Look at the pyramids of Egypt and the, you know, the, the, the grandeur of the architecture and the engineering. Look at the hanging gardens in Babylon. Look at all of the glory of all of these kingdoms. All of it, I will give it to you. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. But then Satan tried number three. It says that he took him to the top of the temple, the highest point, And he said, throw yourself down from here because it is written. Hey, I can play the it is written game too, Satan said. Throw yourself down because it is written. He will give his angels charge over you lest you should dash your foot against a stone. 
Jesus said, you know, and again, it is written. He responded with the word of God. But the three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, do something that will magnify your reputation. How does Satan seek to trip up a man or a woman or even you and I? What does he do? He comes to us and he says, you know what? You just need to relax. You have body needs, you know. Look at how high strung. You've been running 10 miles a minute. You know, you just need to relax. Just take a couple sips. Take a couple of tokes. Have another sandwich, you know. Watch another episode. Just chill out because that's what you need, the lust of the flesh. You know, my flesh, I just need to pamper myself, you know, kind of a thing. Or the lust of the eyes. We, we see him or we see her. For me, it would be a her, not a him, you know. But, you, you know, we see them and we say, wow, they're beautiful. What would it be like? Or we see that car, you know, the shiny fire engine red, and we say, yeah. That's awesome. You know, we see the, you know, the, the shine, you know, the contour of the metal or the steel. We say, yeah, that's awesome. The way the sun hits the rim, you know, and just the, ma- the majesty of it, you know, and everything. And we see it. Our eyes are attracted to what we're drawn to it, you know. The lust of our eyes. He knows how to get us with the things that we see or with the pride of life. Look at what would it be like to live in that neighborhood? What would it like to be to work in that building or on that floor or in that office or behind that desk or with that Esquire after your name or the MD, you know, or something like that? You know, and he gets us, he draws us away and he gets us onto the course of this world following after its ebb and its flow and he draws us away the same things, the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes and the pride of life. And all he needs is a little toehold just to get us just a little bit to hook us into following after him in some little way. And a toehold eventually becomes a foothold and a foothold eventually becomes a stronghold and we find ourselves in bondage to the prince of the power of the air. He's the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. Prior to our coming to Christ, the Bible says that we all had our conversation in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And by saying this, Paul brings it to our attention that sin is not something that's done outwardly, but it's also something that is birthed within us. He says it's the desires of the flesh, but it's also the desires of the mind. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus equated lust with adultery. He said they were the same. He said that anger and murder were the same, that if you've been angry with someone, you've already murdered them in your heart. And he linked the two things together. He said that they were inseparable. Why? Because sin always begins in the mind. It's not just something that's worked out in the flesh, but it's something that starts from within. And the point of it is that we are sinners by nature. And that's what he says, that we were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Isn't that interesting that he says by nature? Because what is it that people use as an excuse for their sin? Well, I was made this way. God made me this way. Yeah, that's right. He made you. You are made. You are separated from him. And hoping that he will, you will find him and you'll repent and give your life to him and you'll begin to experience life, but to justify your sin by the fact that it's your nature. And notice that it says that we are children of wrath. You know, that's a buzzword in church today. I don't know if you know that, but you're not supposed to say that. Because God is love. 
and love and loving and we love each other and everything is love and God just loves and he loves the sinner. He loves the wicked man. He loves the sodomite. He loves everybody and everybody's just in this big bubble of love and ultimately one day love is going to win and all of us will just be ushered into this eternal paradise of love and there's no such thing as wrath or judgment or hell. It's not what Paul says. He says that we were by nature children of wrath. A person that is apart from Christ, that is yet dead in their trespasses and sins, stands in a place of God's wrath. He's not happy with you. He's not looking at you, plugging for you, hoping that you'll get through. You are in a place where the judgment of God is looming over your life, and you are in danger. But the moment a man or a woman comes to Jesus Christ, well, I'm getting ahead of myself again, but that wrath turns into rich and real love. But apart from Christ, you are by nature a children of wrath, even as others. Now, before we move on into the section, we've talked extensively about what we were. Before we move on to what we are now, I want you to see this contrast. Understand, Satan is the great counterfeiter. He always takes the things of God and he changes them. He twists them in such a way as to use them for his own purpose. Remember in the book of Exodus when Moses was turning the water into blood and bringing in the flies? What did the false magicians of Egypt do? They turned water to blood. They made flies. They do all these things, you know, to try to emulate the things that God did and somehow, you know, discredit his work. And Satan does that throughout. Even in the end times, Antichrist is going to come on the scene, a man that's filled with Satan and so such an imitation of Christ that people are going to look at him and say, yes, that's the Messiah of God. And Satan is always doing that. Now, God gives to his people. He gives to you and I, his children. He gives us his word. Now, the Bible says that his word is powerful. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between the soul and the spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. That It's the bread by which we live. It's the milk of the word. It's that which sustains us. Psalm chapter 1 says that he who meditates in the word will be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in due season. That the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55 that his word, the word of God that he gives to us, that it will not return void, but it's going to accomplish in our lives the thing that God designed for it to accomplish when we hear it and when it enters into our hearts and into our lives, that God is going to make it happen. And we understand as children of God the power of the word of God. Now, the Spirit of God that's working within our lives uses the Word of God that we have to conform us into the image of His Son. That's how this whole Christian thing works. The Spirit of God using the Word of God to make us the people of God. Do you understand that? Now, Satan seeks to emulate the work of God. So what does he do? He produces a path, a meandering walk that leads to death. And then he puts food in the path. And he puts entertainment in it. He puts television in it. He puts movies in it. He puts radio in it. He puts advertising, news media, newspapers, billboards, magazines. And everywhere you go, the signs and the ways of Satan's agenda and his, his kingdom are everywhere. They bombard us constantly. And for those that are unsaved, what you have is you have the spirit of Satan anointing or using the things of Satan that are constantly entering in through these mediums that he has designed. 
And they conform us into the image of him. Do you understand what happens? And and, and thus, what you see when you turn on the television or when you're watching a movie or when these things are happening, do you know what that is? That's fodder and what Satan uses to bring people into conformity with his image and his system. That's what he's using. That's what it is. And you say, come on. You know, I mean, it's just a sitcom or it's just, listen, I'm not meddling in your life or saying any of those things. You know, I'm not doing that. What I'm saying is this. I'm challenging you. Stop watching TV for a period of time. I'm not going to set it. I'm just going to say, stop watching television. Stop watching movies. Stop filling yourself with pop culture and, you know, reading, you know, tabloid magazines and just following what's going on and and just filling. Stop doing that for a season. And you're going to discover two things. Number one, you're going to discover, I promise you, is that you are addicted to it. You will discover that. Second thing you're going to discover is that when you again see those things, television, movie, a magazine or something, it's going to have a completely different flavor than it did when you were filling yourself with it all the time. Because during the season that you're separated from it, God is going to work in your life. He's going to renew your mind. Things are going to happen. Things are going to change. His spirit, his word washes over us. It cleans us out. The light of his word enters in and things happen within us. And when we again see what Satan is using suggestively to conform people into his image, we see it for what it is, at least a little bit more than we did before. And we say, oh, oh my goodness. What is that? Now, I'm not telling you you have to do it. I'm not saying you're not saved if you watch TV or watch... What I'm saying is take a break and see what happens in your life. Because those things are the medium of Satan's work to conform people into his image. It's what he uses. We do the same thing. We put scripture on a refrigerator. We listen to tapes in the car. We put the Bible. We, take, we get up early in the morning and we read it. Why? Because the Spirit of God uses that in our lives to conform us into the image of Christ. Satan does the same thing. He puts a billboard by the street with his scripture on it. He puts a flash thing across your computer screen you know, or something somewhere. All these things suggestively seeking to conform people into his image, just meander along with the flow. Wow, we're so out of time, and I am not even close. I hate it when this happens. All I did was give you the velvet backdrop. I didn't even get to tell you what we're... what we are. Well, we'll come back to it next week. I hope tonight that you realize the severity of where this world is heading. Perhaps you're following what's going on in the news with the nations in the Middle East. You know, the the, the transitions that are taking place in Egypt. The mysterious explosions that have rocked cities in Iran that no one's claiming responsibility for and no one will talk about what's happening. The 150,000 suicide bombers that are waiting by the border of Israel that they will go in if there's anything that happens. The Katusha rockets that have come in from the north and landed in the northern part of Israel. If you could see the simmering pot boiling over there and see it in the lens of scripture and understand that the days that we're living in. The stakes are very high right now. And there's still people that you're here or, you know, maybe even people that you know and and they're still saying, you know what, I'm not ready to give my life to Christ yet. I'm telling you right now that if that's you, you're meandering on a course. You don't even know what you're doing or why you're doing it, but where you're going to end up 
is in a place completely separated from God for all of eternity. When right now the outstretched, pierced hands of Christ are reaching out and saying, whosoever will, let him come. My blood paid the price for the sin of mankind. And with one word calling upon the name of Jesus, you can pass from death, what Paul says the dead are, to life. Apart from anything that you do or produce in and of yourself, God is willing to give you the gift of eternal life. And for you to say, no, I'm not done fulfilling the lusts of my flesh yet. I'm not done living for myself. I'm not done. Listen, you're missing what life is all about. You have yet to discover the very purpose for your existence. Because what God wants to do for you is he wants to lift you out of the congregation of the dead and he wants to set you in the place of eternal life. And that that is a gift that he is willing to give. He paid the price in full. He paid for it in his own blood. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this eternal truth. We thank you that you tell us, Lord, that it isn't a mystery. And I pray, Lord, that tonight you would take the things that we heard about the old life, about what once was, and that you would again awaken us to what you've done for us. That you would remind us again afresh and anew what we once were. That we wouldn't forget about the bondage. That we wouldn't forget about the fear. The uncertainty of laying our head upon the pillow at night and not knowing what was going to happen if we died or not knowing why we existed. Many of us, we've forgotten the pain of being bound to sin. We've taken our deliverance for granted. And I pray tonight, as Paul just shines the light again on what we once were, Lord, I pray that it would stir up in us a passion for what you've done for us. And it would stir in us compassion for those that don't yet know you. And if, Lord, there's any here that don't know you, I pray that even now your spirit would awaken them. That they would see this opportunity as a holy invitation. An opportunity to leave the old life. To step off the meandering path. To come out from the influence of the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. And to come to the Father of lights and live. Pray that right now, Lord, you would seal salvation in this place. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I'd encourage you, cry out to God in your heart. You would say, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I know that I'm a sinner. I've transgressed your law. And I'm willing to come. And I pray that you'd save my soul. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose. And I believe that you're coming. And if you'll just cry out to God and pray that prayer, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And I just pray, Father, in this late hour, in this desperate season, that you would save souls. I pray for your people here, Lord. Bless your flock. Bless your flock. Fill us with your spirit tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.